Section 17 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marissa Sheldon. Antonia by Georges Sand, translated by Georges Burnham Eves. Section 17. This time Julien was speaking the truth, and not simply forcing himself to be brave in order to comfort his mother. He felt not perfectly tranquil, but strong. His two interviews with Julie in quick succession had given his heart a new direction, a more unerring impulse. He had found in her presence the inspiration which gave full play to the seriousness and the generosity of his passion. He was sure that he had laid bare his heart to her, and that he had neither terrified nor insulted her. Did he believe that she loved him? No, but it may be that he had a vague feeling that she did, and there was a mysterious enjoyment in his reverie. He had attained a perfect understanding of his mission in the life of exalted and unselfish sentiment, which was really his normal life. What he had said, he proposed to do, and he had the strength to do it. To love in silence, to seek nothing, to obtain nothing by surprise, and to seize nothing except an opportunity to devote himself unreservedly to his mission, such was his plan, his determination, his profession of faith, so to speak. And now, he thought, it may be that I shall suffer terribly, despite my determination, but I shall so enjoy suffering nobly, and holding my peace for love of her, that I shall triumph over my suffering, and my mother will not again feel its rebound. I must be very strong in the struggle between my instincts and my duties. And why should I not? I have always loved lofty ideas and sentiments which are beyond the reach of the common herd. As I am obliged to be a man, and as I am persuaded that duty is found in family ties, I shall doubtless do some day as Marcel has done. I shall marry a virtuous woman, who will be thereafter my best friend. Until then, I propose to remain free and chaste. I propose to love without hope, and if possible without desire, this nobly-born Julie who can never be mine. I will overcome the desire, I will carry fraternal feeling to the point of sublimity, and I will nourish all my faculties with the sublime. I will be to the other people only a very patient, very amiable young working man, seeking grace and charm in baskets of roses. But by dint of studying the divine mystery of purity in the hearts of flowers, one may obtain a revelation of sanctity in love. It seems to me a fine thing to say to oneself that one might scheme to surprise the virtue of the woman one loves, and that one loves her too well to attempt it. The life of which I dream is all meditations and sentiment. Very well, I will live it as long as possible. I will live by my thoughts as other people live by their acts, and it may be that I shall be the happiest of men. I shall feel that I am sustained by an enthusiasm which will not be worn to shreds by disappointments. I shall live and breathe alone and every moment in the beautiful, the pure, and the great, with even more satisfaction than my poor father, who was conscious of a craving for it, 
but who thought that he could gratify his craving amid luxurious surroundings or in the society of this or that great personage. I shall need nothing of the sort, and I shall be far, far richer, having no other desire than to be satisfied with myself. In soaring thus resolutely into the regions of the ideal, Julien was in truth following a secret tendency which had developed in him early in life. He had received an exceedingly good education, and, while studying his art assiduously, had read a great deal, but, being naturally inclined to enthusiasm of an austere sort, he did not indulge his tastes in all directions, or plunge into all sorts of pleasure. Of all that his youth had fed upon, he had reveled in the great Corneille with the most satisfaction and benefit. There he had found, in the loftiest form, the strongest and most daring aspirations to heroism. He preferred teaching of that sort put in action. Those noble virtues manifesting and giving expression to themselves to the discussions of contemporary philosophy. This is not equivalent to saying that he despised the spirit of his time, or that he held aloof from the extraordinary upheaval of ideas then in progress. On the contrary, he was one of the sturdiest products of that period, which is unique in all history in respect to its magnificent illusions pending the formation of awe-inspiring resolutions. Those were the last days of the monarchy, and very few people then thought of overturning it. At all events, Julien was not one of those who thought of it. He went far beyond anticipation of any event whatsoever in politics. He was intoxicated with the discoveries and dreams of science, moral and physical, recently set free, en masse, so to speak, from the clouds of the past. Lagrange, Bali, Lalande, Bertrolet, Manche, Condorcet, and Lavoisier were already revolutionizing thought. When we reflect upon that rapid succession of fortunate experiments which, in a few years, produced astronomy from astrology, chemistry from alchemy, and replaced blind prejudice by experimental analysis all along the line of human knowledge, we realize that by making war on superstitions, the philosophers of the 18th century freed individual genius from its fetters simultaneously with the religious and social conscience of nations. What presumption, then, what excitement, what intoxication, in these first reachings out toward the future? The human intellect has hailed the bright sun of progress, and already it thinks to take possession of all its rays. No sooner has the first balloon arisen on its wings of flame than two men risk the crossing of the Straits of Dover. Instantly mankind cries, We are the master of the roads through the air, we are the inhabitants of the sky. At the period in which the action of our story happens to be laid, this noble beginning of the new ideas had found its formula in the word perfectibility. It was Condorcet who eloquently outlined the doctrine, and taking no account of human weakness, predicted for its boundless destiny. He believed in infinity so absolutely that he hoped to find the secret of the destruction of death, and everybody who used his mind, everybody who read, was beginning to believe with him in the indefinite prolongation of physical life. Parmentier believed, moreover, 
that he could banish forever the specter of famine by acclimatizing the potato. Mesmer believed that he had discovered a mysterious agent, the source of all marvels. Saint-Martin proclaimed the rehabilitation of the human soul and illumined the terrors of the old-fashioned dogmas with the dogma of infinite life. Cagliostro pretended to revive ancient magic in a natural and comprehensible way. In a word, the vertigo of the future has set every brain in a whirl, from the most prosaic to the most romantic, and, at the height of that intense excitement, the present was a trifling obstacle which no one deigned to notice. The old monarchy, the unbending clergy, were still on their feet, striving to retain their crumbling power. But liberty had been inaugurated in America, and France felt that her day was at hand. She had no thought of bloodshed. Pleasant chimeras exclude ideas of revenge. On the eve of the terrible storm, men's minds were making holiday, and an indescribable, feverish grasping for the ideal paved the way for the magnificent outburst of 89. Julien was full of that faith and determination, which seems to descend to earth providentially at the moment fixed for mighty struggles. But with it all, there was a certain calmness due to the direction, the habit, and the temperament of his thought. There was a certain philosophical mysticism, not in the stage of discussion, but in the stage of instinct, and a sort of craving to love. If he had not loved a woman, he would have loved liberty to fanaticism. Love consecrated him to self-sacrifice. As soon as Julie's image filled his heart, he no longer thought of himself except as a force which might serve to protect Julie. Did he entertain the idea that she could or would be likely to belong to him? Yes, he undoubtedly did. A confused idea, sometimes imperious, but valiantly combated. He had no prejudices. He was not, like his uncle Antoine, dazzled by rank, title, and show. He knew that Julie was born in modest station, and that her fortune was much impaired. Moreover, he felt that he was her equal, for he was one of those men of the third estate who, being filled with a legitimate and tenacious pride, was beginning to say to one another, The third estate is everything. Just as they said later, The people are everything. And just as they will some day say, Everyone is everything. Denying no kind of nobility, whether due to the sword, the toga, the factory, or the plough. Thus, Julien did not look upon the Comtesse d'Estrelles as a woman placed above him by circumstances, but by personal merit. That merit he exaggerated possibly in his own mind. It is the privilege of love to tend constantly toward the loftier regions of the soul, and to believe that it is summoned to the conquest of divinities. So that, in his passion, admirable humility was combined with boundless pride. "'I am not worthy of such a woman,' he said to himself. "'I must become so, and when, by dint of patience, unselfishness, self-denial, and respect, I have succeeded, why, then perhaps I shall feel that I have the right to say to her, "'Love me!' But he sometimes wondered if that day would come before the unforeseen events of the future had disposed of Julie's fate. Then he would say to himself, Very well, 
I shall possess her esteem, perhaps her friendship, and the time I shall have devoted to governing myself with dignity will not be wasted. Madame Thierry was surprised and overjoyed, therefore, to find that his cheerfulness and all the symptoms of physical and moral well-being reappeared suddenly, on the very day of this momentous episode. "'My friend,' she said to Marcel, when they were alone for a moment, "'I dare not tell you what is passing through my mind, but he has such a happy look. Mon Dieu, do you believe it is possible?' "'What?' said Marcel. "'Oh, yes, yes, you are speaking of his visit to Madame d'Estrelles. "'Well, such things have been known, my dear aunt. "'He is good-looking enough and agreeable enough to please a great lady. "'But she is ruined and can extricate herself only by a wealthy marriage, "'which it is our duty to desire for her, "'on the condition that the man is not too old. "'I do not believe she is as bold and courageous as you were, "'and, moreover, the plan that succeeded with you is generally ruinous.' A great passion is a number that wins only once in a hundred thousand times in the lottery of destiny. Let us not wish that for Julien and for her. No, I do not wish it. It is too dangerous, as you say. But if she does take a fancy to him, what will happen? I have no idea, but she is virtuous, and he is an honorable man. They will both suffer. It would be better to separate them if possible. To be sure— that is what I said to you in the beginning. But what a pity. They are both so handsome, so young, and so good. Ah, fate is very unjust sometimes. If my poor husband had left Julien the fortune we once had, he might have been a very suitable match for her, as she is poor and without family pride. Alas, may God forgive me. This is the first time I ever blamed my André. Let us say no more about it, Marcel. Let us say no more about it. We must think about it, none the less, replied the solicitor, and not let Julien's heart burn too fiercely. Today it is fireworks, because he probably has some hope. But tomorrow it may be a conflagration. What shall we do, Marcel? I don't know. I would like to be able to confess Madame d'Estrelles and Uncle Antoine above all, for I am not deceived by his philosophy, and I am afraid— What are you afraid of? Everything. Should we not prepare for everything with him? Madame d'Estrelles had been almost made ill by all the excitement of the day. Julien's visit had proved to be the finishing touch, but as soon as he left her— the sort of fever which Monsieur Antoine's performance had caused gave place to a not unpleasant feeling of lassitude. "'I have a friend,' she said to herself. "'A most agreeable friend, that is certain, though the whole world should make sport of me for trusting so implicitly in the word of a man whom I did not know a few hours ago. But should I accept this zealous friendship? Is it not dangerous to him and me?' To be sure, he did not ask me to accept it. He went away like a man who is dependent on nobody, and who loves without permission. Since he says that he has no hope, has he not a right to love? And what could I do pre to prevent him? Julie was perfectly well aware, in her inmost conscience, that she should not have received Julien after Madame Thierry's revelation concerning his feeling for her. "'After all,' she said, 
Why did I receive him when my first impulse was to send him that simple yet conclusive message? There is no reply. That would have rid me of uncle and nephew at one stroke. But did the nephew deserve to be humiliated? Did he not come simply to rescue his honor from a detestable snare laid by his uncle? Had he not the right to say to me thereupon all that he did say to me? And was I offended by what he took the liberty of adding on his own account, although it was perhaps a little too sentimental? Ought I to have been offended? It is of no use for me to ask the question. I cannot answer it. He offered himself. He gave himself to me without asking for anything. He made me a present of his heart and his life, whether I would or not. He did not speak to me like a lover, no, indeed, but like a slave and a master all at once. All this is very strange, and my brain is in a whirl. I do not know what it is that I feel for him. The only thing that is certain is that I believe in him. It seemed to Julie, as well as to Madame Thierry and Marcel, that the morrow of that strange day would probably be fraught with important events. In vain did they question themselves concerning Monsieur Antoine's wrath. To their great amazement, neither the morrow nor the days following brought about any change in their respective situations. The horticulturist went into the country, no one knew where. There was no place for him to go, at least within the knowledge of Marcel, who thought that he knew all his business, but who really knew only a part of it. When he was thoroughly convinced of his uncle's absence, he became anxious about him, but he was shown orders written by his own hand, which his head gardener received each morning, detailing minutely the nature and extent of the care to be bestowed on certain delicate plants. These horticultural bulletins were updated and without stamps. They were brought by the ex-armorer's valet, an old soldier, who was the slave of his orders, obedient as a negro, dumb as an old stump. "'Well,' said Marcel to Madame Thierry, "'he is in the sulks, that is certain, "'or else he is ashamed of his madness "'and has gone into hiding for a little time. "'Let us hope that he will return "'cured of his matrimonia mania, "'and that he will consider his honour "'involved in carrying out a certain bargain "'relative to this pavilion. "'You need the indemnity, "'and I do not conceal from you "'that Madame d'Estrel is greatly in need "'of the promised amount.' I don't know what vicious insect is pricking her creditors, but suddenly they all began to display the most extraordinary impatience and anxiety. They go so far as to threaten to transfer their claims to one principal creditor, who would surely speculate on my client's embarrassment, and that is the worst thing that could possibly happen. I am not at all easy in my mind he said two days later to Madame d'Estrel, who had just been to visit her father-in-law, who was ill. I am afraid Monsieur le Marquis may die unexpectedly before he has settled up your affairs. I place no reliance on his good will toward me, replied Julie, but I cannot believe that he will leave me at the mercy of the Count's creditors, when only a few last steps are needed to settle with them. Of course, we must expect the childish fear of robbing himself, which always haunts selfish old men. But after him... After him? echoed Marcel. The devil is after him. I mean at his heels. His wife is a good-for-nothing. 
I am afraid of her. She doesn't love you, and she is nothing to you, since your husband was not her son. Mon Dieu, you look at the dark side of everything, my dear solicitor. The Marquis is neither very old nor very ill. He must have made his will. The Marchioness is very pious, and what she would not do from affection, she will do as a matter of duty. Do not you discourage me, who have always encouraged me. I should not be discouraged myself if I could put my hand on my singular old uncle. Let him buy the pavilion and pay for it, and that gives us two or three months' respite. We shall have time to sell the little farm in the Beauvoisie, or make it over to the creditors at an agreed price. Otherwise, we shall be brutally sold out and lose a hundred percent of those poor scraps, which are of some value today. End of section 17